This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to this special bonus episode of Once Upon a Crime. This summer, I was fortunate to once again be invited to be a featured podcaster at CrimeCon UK. While there, I participated in a really fun collaboration with my good friend and fellow true crime podcaster, Tyler from Minds of Madness. We presented the case of the disappearance of Mi Quan Chong during a live show at CrimeCon. I'm now pleased to be able to share it with you. I hope you'll enjoy this special episode from CrimeCon UK in London. Speaking of CrimeCon, if you'll be attending CrimeCon in Florida next weekend, September 22nd through 24th, I'd love to meet you. I won't be there in an official capacity, so you won't find Once Upon a Crime on the program. But I'll be attending and hanging out with all my podcast friends, and of course you. You can find me on Podcast Row, hanging out at the Minds of Madness booth with Tyler, or at any of the After Hours parties. Come say hello, and we'll talk true crime while we enjoy the best true crime convention in the world, CrimeCon. I hope to see you there. We've got a we've got a multimedia show. For yeah. <laughs> my, my wife's a television director, so she had to send us with this uh, lovely little thing. Okay, we're good to go. Oh. <laughs> I was impressed by the video. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us. My name is Tyler. I am the host of the Minds of Madness podcast. And uh, if you haven't heard the show, uh, we are a true crime podcast. We've been producing for six and a half years out of Toronto, Ontario. And my name is Esther. I'm the host of Once Upon a Crime podcast. And I come from California, out of San Jose, California. First time I met Tyler was at a crime con as well in 2018 in Nashville, correct? Yes. And, but we interacted over social media because we were both fans of each other's podcasts way before then. And uh, we were very excited to come here and do this for you today. Exactly. I was a fan of Esther's show even before I even thought about starting a podcast. Um, her show is very similar to ours. It's a single narrator digging into the details. And, and when Esther approached me a couple months ago, she said, let's do a live show in London. I was like, oh, hell yeah, I'd love to do that. Especially with somebody who I've been listening to for so long. Because I know you know how it feels when you're... You're listening to all these shows constantly, and you, you hear these people talking in your ears all the time. You feel like you actually like know them really well. And for me, it was an incredible, incredible offer. So we got our team working on it. They found a case that's a local. Um, it happened in uh, well, it started to unfold in Wembley, London, and uh, it involves an elderly woman who suddenly vanished without a trace. I'm using my podcast voice. <laughs> Justin. Thank you. Do you know the voice? All right. Okay. So like Tyler said, this woman vanished, and 16 days later and 200 miles away from where she vanished, visitors were exploring the seaside town of Solcombe, and they stumbled across a horrific scene while they were walking along an overgrown footpath by the sea. Okay. Um, hi, I just found a body. Oh, go ahead, caller. What's your emergency? Um, I just found a body. Right, okay. A, a, a body, is it... Are they breathing? 
no, their dad, they look like they've um, possibly been there like a few days or something. It's the right and stuff. Right, okay, bear me a second. Let's pop this on. What's the road? Yeah, what road are you on? Um, I'm in Falcon. You're in Falcon, uh, sorry. Let, let me have a look. I can populate, hopefully, where you are. So, um, Bennett Road, are you quite near the harbour? Um, we're up from North Sand Beach. Um, hang on, we'll just look at Google Maps. Oh, okay, yeah, so I can see North Sand Bay. Road. Bennett Road, yeah, you are on Bennett Road. So yes, this family, as you can hear from that 999 call, discovered the body of a woman along this path. And not only was that terrifying and disturbing enough, but they also found the woman's body without a head. From the state of decomposition, it was clear it had been there for some time. And then a few days later, they discovered her head. So for a place like this, you know, just a very serene, peaceful place where families go to enjoy themselves near the seaside, this was an unusually gruesome crime. The first question detectives had to um, ask themselves was, first of all, who was this woman? Inside her jacket, the police found something. They found some Bible quotes on a piece of paper. Um, and in her purse, found near the body, they found a camera, a shopping bag, an orange rope, but no identification. And while we were going through this case, I kept asking Esther, what do you think the orange rope was for? No we have no idea. It's an odd thing to be yeah. found in a woman's bag, but there you go. Yeah. The autopsy would later reveal that the woman's head, rather than being as a result of decomposition or animal predation, had been deliberately severed. Um, three days after the body was found, the victim was discovered as 67-year-old Mi Quin Chong. She was known as Deborah to her friends. She had been reported missing on June 11th by a lodger um, in her home, and she seemingly had just vanished that day, and he hadn't heard from her since. Investigators now knew who, but now they had to discover why. So just to tell you a little bit about Deborah, she was born in Kuala, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in the mid-1950s. She was born into poverty. In the 1970s, she immigrated to England, where she studied at Huddersfield Polytechnic. It. it took a lot for me to get that one out. <laughs> and uh, after that, she fell in love and got married. Now, we don't know exactly how they became wealthy, but Deborah and her husband did become considerably wealthy. Yes. So everything seemed to be idealistic in Deborah's life at this point. She had love, she had money, she had happiness, but it all came crashing down in her 40s when she became a widow, very young. This is when her husband died unexpectedly. Later, what we'll see is that her mental health took a decline. She was actually diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, um, but it was being managed with medication. One of the things that we'll also see that's gonna play a part in this case is that she, like I said, she was wealthy, she had money, and she became very generous with this wealth, almost overly generous, we should say. And it, it was like, it was, it was her way of giving to others, but it was also a way maybe to connect with people. You know, people said she was probably a little bit lonely, and this was a way for her to connect with people was through, you know, she had this resource. Exactly, Esther, and Deborah's generosity was really well known throughout the area. She would often invite homeless people or people who were down on their luck into her home, and she wouldn't even charge them rent. Um, many times, you know, she had people in, they were staying with her rent-free, and once she even gave somebody 50,000 pounds as a down payment for a house. 
Deborah's primary uh, social circle was her church, and uh, she was a devout member of her faith, and that was also very important to her. Yes, and at church, this was like her community. People there knew her as very um, outgoing and extroverted, but in around you know her neighbors and things, they said she was pretty quiet and shy, kept mostly to herself. So it's obviously she was much more comfortable around her smaller circle of at people at her church. Um, they also said she was a bit eccentric, but she was very pleasant and she was you know social and outgoing and liked to make small talk. Um, in 2021, Deborah had a lodger, lodger move into her home named David. And obviously, you know, it wasn't something that she probably needed the money, but there was a couple of reasons why she probably did this. She was getting older. She was having some problems with her health. Her mobility was declining. Um, and, you know, having somebody around, it would be very comforting to widow, of course, right? Um, but then something else happened. The next thing that kind of, you know, created this stress in Deborah's life that we're going to see a decline again was that her old, oldest sister passed away. Um, and this is when people saw the sharp decline in her mental health once again. Um, and we'll see what unfolds from this point forward. Yeah, it pretty much pushed her over the edge. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is where the letter writing began. Deborah started writing letters and a lot of them. She was writing letters to King Charles, who was Prince Charles at the time, and Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. She kind of believed that they were communicating with her through YouTube. And she was writing constantly. She was not sleeping, well, mostly not sleeping and mostly not eating. Instead, she would spend her days writing letters to the Prince and the Prime Minister. And she was mailing them out. The letters caught somebody's attention wasn't the prime minister, wasn't the prince. It was a, uh, an, organ an organization called, and I had to stop to be able to read this, so I got it right, the Fixated Threat Assessment Center. And this is pretty cool. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a program between police and mental health, and what they do is they get alerted by any possible threats, because a large percentage of people who fixate or stalk um, public figures suffer from mental health conditions. So what they're able to do is flag these people, report them to local mental health uh, treatment centers, and uh, it's pretty much as a preventative measure to get these people the help they need. Yeah. Like you said, Tyler and I talked, Tyler's from Canada, from the U.S., we don't have these kind of resources. So this was a very good thing for Deborah that she had somebody, usually like in the U.S., if something happens, the police are involved right away because it is a threat, not just, you know, an assessment. Yeah, in North America, you got to stand up and say something awful. Right. And you get the attention and not the kind of attention you want. Right, exactly. So she is um, referred to this mental health team because of this letter writing. But before this, she had been receiving holistic treatments from uh, someone in her church, who was an osteopath, um, and her name was Jenna Mitchell. Now, Gemma's healing methods were considered alternative. It was like prayer and, you know, this, and, and some, you know, some manipulating of the body, alternative medicines would, would be for something like mental health. But Deborah's deteriorating condition obviously needed much more intervention than that, including proper medication. So in May of 2021, she was prescribed antipsychotic medications, and we see here that these medications have a noticeable effect for the better on her. Um, but her physical health was still continuing to decline. So those two things were going on simultaneously. Um, Deborah's lodger, David, was looking out for her, which is, this is another great thing about this, this story, um, that he requested in-home care for Deborah because she's frail. Um, but 
another thing that we see change here is when she was overly generous with, generous with her money before, now she becomes very discerning about it. So she's, you know, she's, she's gotten the message somehow that maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. Um, and she starts saying no to people where before she was not even just offering, not even, you know, they weren't even asking. Some were, but this is where that changes. Now, not everybody is going to be happy with this change about Deborah's new fiscal responsibility. Yeah, the money train is over yeah. and people are upset. June 11th, Deborah's lodger reports are missing. He'd seen her the day before, but it was getting late. He was worried. She was old, frail, on new medication. Um, it's not like she took a trip somewhere, went to a friend's house overnight. You know, this was concerning. She needs to be at home. So where is she? Yeah, so four days after she's last seen, there's no, there's no sign of her. Police make a social media post about her disappearance, but that's about it, and nothing much comes of that. There's basically zero press coverage on this, um, and we've, you know, you've probably heard here in Crime Time Today and in other things that's reported that there are discrepancies in when people go missing. We just heard from, you know, Eric and Eric's panel just earlier about this. Um, and why does this happen? So some of the missing person cases are treated differently because of things like, you know, um, the, the people are elderly or they're, you know, the, you know, they're poor, marginalized individuals, mental health, you know, having mental health issues. Those all sometimes play a part into maybe it not being for whatever reason. They just don't reported. get the same kind of coverage that don't. other cases do yeah. where it's, you know, really obvious. Right. Where they're putting a lot of time into it and, and she did not get that coverage. Right. So 16 days later, after being reported missing, this is when the family discovers Deborah's body in Salkum and calls 999. And th the sad part about it was it was, she was discovered by accident. Mm -hmm. Like this, this wasn't a family that was intentionally out there looking for her because there was just wasn't enough coverage in the media for it. So <clears throat> as the mystery of what happened starts to unfold, we hear about the details. There's a body in a suitcase, mm -hmm. head found 30 meters away. Okay, that's gonna get all kinds of media attention. And it just became sensationalized on the news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now on June 30th, the, um, the, her, the, the, I'm excuse me, the discovery of her body is announced by police on June 30th, but the death is, is um, called unexplained. Um, initially, what the police would, you know, thought was that it must have been there for, the body must have been there for days because of the, due to the state of the decomposition of the body. But it, they found that odd, though, because there was a lot of foot traffic in that area, like I said. This was, a, you know, a, a very popular path. Um, so they wondered about that. So that's the distance between her home and, uh, and where they found her. Uh, police began their investigation in Deborah's murder, and they started interviewing everybody that Deborah, everyone that Deborah knows. The lodger, David, tells police he received a WhatsApp message from Deborah's osteopath and spiritual leader, Gemma Mitchell. According to Gemma, Deborah had left town for a year, and she was staying somewhere near the ocean. Police also discovered an email sent to the Missing Persons Charity. This is an organization where you can report missing people, um, and uh, that was reported on June 30th, which was actually the same day that Deborah's body was found. Um, and the email said the same thing. She's spending a year away with family, and she's somewhere by the ocean. Um, and interestingly, interestingly enough, Jim and Mitchell wrote that email. Next, police went through Deborah's phone, like you would, and they found a trove of messages between someone 
and Deborah, who she agreed to give 200,000 pounds to. That is a lot of money. And who do you think that person was? Gemma Mitchell. Yeah. Next slide. Next slide. Sorry, I was too busy talking about Gemma. So this is what detectives learned, that Deborah on, um, that Deborah retracted this offer of 200,000 pounds days before her disappearance. And on the day of her disappearance is when Deborah had received messages from Gemma asking if they could meet. Deborah's response by text was she, she said she did not want to discuss money. So obviously this had been going on for a while. That same day, CCTV footage captured Gemma arriving at Deborah's house carrying a sizable blue suitcase. And five hours later, the cameras capture Gemma is leaving with this same suitcase, although it seems appears very visibly heavier than it was before. Mm -hmm. So police now are beginning to wonder, why was Gemma asking Deborah for so much money? Why did she visit Deborah's house the day of her disappearance? And of course, did Gemma really know what happened to her? Yeah. So now we need to talk a little bit about who Gemma was. Gemma was born in 1984. She had a privileged upbringing in Australia. Um, after her parents divorced, Gemma had moved back to the UK to, be, uh, to live with her mother and sister. Um, she studied, here she studied uh, human sciences at King's College. And she excelled academically, graduating with honors and choosing a career in osteopathy. She had even won a prestigious Hamilton Prize for anatomical excellence for her remarkable skills in... Get this. Wait for it. <laughs> dissecting human corpses. Yes. Pretty handy skill to have. Yeah. So we see her, you know, early in her life, she seemed destined for success. She first sets up a practice in Australia, but six years later in 2015, she sells her business in Australia and she returns to the UK to live with her mother. Now at this time, her mother is living in a home, a you know, big home worth four million pounds. Now we think, wow, this sounds pretty cushy, right? Not too shabby. No, it wasn't. <laughs> The home had been in the family for generations, but it was anything but luxurious. Despite its market value, the place was a dump. Their mother and uh, Gemma tried to get the house renovated, and they thought by increasing the value, they would add an extra story onto the house. But they got some shady contractors, and they swindled them out of 230,000 pounds. The house was left in complete shambles. There was scaffolding left everywhere. They didn't even have a roof on the property in some parts. Some walls were missing, boxes of junk, building materials everywhere, and they obviously gave up on just taking care of the rest of the house because their kitchen was full of rotting food. Yeah. This must have been very stressful, as you would imagine, you know, for everybody, her, Gemma and her mother. Um, and we see Gemma kind of went off the rails at this point because one of the things that we find out is that she had violated a non-molestation order, which in the U.S. I think we call a restraining order, um, and this was filed by her sister and brother-in-law. Yeah, so, she was harassing them. Yeah, there was some harassment going on. We don't know exactly what. We kind of see this pattern as what was going on with Deborah, maybe. But Gemma gets in a little bit of trouble, but it's nothing very serious. On the wrist. Yeah, yeah. Little, yeah total slap on the wrist for that. In 2020, Gemma now is seeking solace in the church. She's attending church a lot, and this is where she meets Deborah Chong. Um, and a Deborah, kind, friendly, generous widow, right? 
Yeah, and Deborah and Jem initially shared, you know, a common connection through their faith, but then they kind of realized the, it was a give and take kind of relationship, and they each had something to offer each other. Uh, of course, Gemma offered her spiritual healing and her osteopathy, and Deborah, she was her financial benefactor. So we kind of figure out that this is probably the time where Gemma starts seeing Deborah more as a mark and not as a friend and you know someone she could easily financially exploit yeah because what we find is that over time Gemma was able to kind of finagle information um out of out of Gem sorry Gemma was able to finagle information out of Deborah about her finances um and this is when she convinces Deborah to donate donate 200,000 pounds to her home renovation she's got to get a roof over her head she definitely literally literally roof so she uh, and Deborah agrees to this on one condition. She said that the house now had to become a place of Christian worship if she was going to give her this money. Gemma agrees to this because I would imagine this time she's going to agree to anything. Yeah. yeah. So as the two grow closer, Gemma now finds out about Deborah's will, and she also finds out about what will become of her, you know, significant estate after she passes away. Yeah, because Deborah and Gemma, are, they're they're talking all the time. They're exchanging like tons of texts and it's always about the house and the finances of you know what she needs to get it fixed up and by this time though like we mentioned earlier deborah's on new medication her head's a little clearer she's able to think straighter and she's realizing maybe i shouldn't be giving everyone all my money Mm -hmm. so you know she starts becoming more discerning about her finances and you know when she changes her mind about giving Gemma the money she actually comes up with a really good idea. And I think any homeowner would actually kind of figure this out. I've got this home that's worth, you know, four million pounds. Why don't I sell it and then live a, a great lifestyle off of, off of the, you know, the, the, yeah, whatever you make off selling the house. But Gemma, wasn't, she wasn't going to go for that because she'd really been putting a long con on Deborah. And uh, you know, she'd been working on her for almost an entire year. And it was money she felt she deserved and she wasn't going to let it slip away. Yeah. So Gemma, like I said, been living in, in squalor for, for a while now, um, and she'd been working on Deborah for a while now, and she really was at the end of her rope here, and Deborah's, you know, now backing off, right? But, um, but Gemma's, like, constantly just hounding her about this money, and she's getting very stressed out, and this is what she says, to stop talking about the money, stop talking about the house, and she, signif- she specifically says in her text to... to uh, to Gemma, she says, you know, you're causing me stress. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, which, yeah, which I would imagine, you know, with, with her mental health condition, knew that wasn't good for her. So she's trying to get her to back yeah, off. She doesn't want to keep talking about giving her money. Right. So we fast forward to June 11, 2021. Gemma hops on public transit and goes to Deborah's house with her large blue suitcase. Gotta hit that twice for that to work. Mm-hmm. CCTV footage clearly shows how light the luggage was. She's literally wheeling this thing around with one hand. Like, it's nothing. Now, the, at 8.80 a.m., she arrives at Deborah's house and goes inside. The exact sequence of events, we don't know. Obviously, Gemma knows. She's not going to tell anyone. But what we do know is from the autopsy. Now, Deborah suffered a skull fracture, possibly from being hit, with, hit in the head with an object or as a result of being pushed into something. But either way, the wound was intentional. It's then believed Gemma put Deborah's body into the suitcase because the autopsy also revealed that she suffered several cracked ribs and that was probably from her trying to stuff her into the bag. Um, 
It's also believed the body wouldn't fit. And that's when Gemma used her medical skills and unfortunately decapitated the body. So this next video, um, you'll see CCTV shows that Gemma now leaving Deborah's home. This is five hours after she arrived. But now she's wearing different clothes and wheeling the same suitcase, but it's visibly heavier now. It's bulging. Gemma also has another suitcase, which we'll later on we'll find that it, it contained uh, Deborah's personal like paperwork, things like that. Um, she now wheels the suitcase around London for two hours, and then she calls a cab. Now, she takes this cab to a neighbor's house where she gets dropped off there. Gemma then rolls the suitcase to her own home and hides it in her overgrown garden. Um, the next thing we know about Gemma is that she turns up at the hospital um, being treated for a broken finger, which she claimed in the, or the, to the doctors that she had slammed into a car door. Of course she had. So when Gemma gets home from the hospital, she's not wasting any time. She goes to work forging a fake will for Deborah, and she's leaving 95% of Deborah's assets and estate to Gemma, and she leaves 5% to Gemma's mother. Deborah's estate is worth approximately 700,000 pounds. And this is also when it's believed that Gemma sent the message to Deborah's, uh, Deborah's lodger, David, uh, saying about that she was heading away for a year. Uh, it has quotes, so I gotta do it somewhere near the ocean. But the message didn't work, David didn't buy it, and he reported her missing. Yeah, so we're gonna look at what, what people saw of Gemma at this time. She seemed to appear as normal, as just like any other day. Um, she also actually sp sent a message to somebody that day she met on a Christian dating site saying that she had a really good day. Of course she did. Yeah, I mean. She's going to get 95% of 700,000 pounds. Yeah. And then the following Sunday, she attends church just as if nothing has happened. Everyone says she's acted completely normal. Two weeks pass by. Deborah's, and fam Deborah's family and friends, that's when they start looking for her. Meanwhile, of course, Gemma knows where the body is. It's in her garden. We don't know exactly what prompted the next decision, though. Uh, perhaps because the police were continuing to talk to all of Deborah's associates, including Gemma. Deborah makes a phone call, but it's not from her phone. Months earlier, she had a, a neighbor named Virgil who passed away, and somehow she managed to get into his place and help herself to some of his things. What she did take was his cell phone and his ID. So she was able to use Virgil's ID to reactivate Virgil's cell phone. So basically that gave her a, a way to communicate that's completely untraceable to her. Um, she uses Virgil's phone to then rent a car. Then she gets the suitcase out of the garden, puts it into the rental, and uh, she uh, takes her phone, leaves it at the house, takes Virgil's because she's a criminal mastermind and she figures she won't be tracked. So she now starts to make this four hour drive to Sulcum. But as she's driving in this rental car, remember, she gets a flat tire. Now, Tyler, I rented lots of rental cars. They're like they're brand new. They're like brand new. How did she get a flat tire? We can only say maybe karma played a part in this. I think karma played a big part in this. <laughs> So Gemma now takes this rental to a garage to get this tire fixed. And the, the, the guy that's going to repair it says, you know, she's acting kind of weird, kind of out of it, strange. He also notices a weird, musty smell coming from the car, which you got to remember how many days this, this body was in the suitcase. And now it's in the trunk of this car. Um, and he thought that was weird because it is a rental car, like I said, and it's 
new, basically. Um, she said when he was going to change the tire to put the old tire not in the trunk, put it in the back seat. Okay. Once she gets back on the road, she this is what she realized. This has taken longer than she had planned for, right? So she has to cut her trip kind of short. And this is why we think that she the body ended up on this path that was you know well traveled instead of taking somewhere more remotely where it might have not been found or a long time later been found, right? Um, so. This is, you know, it made it a little bit easier. Again, yeah. karma, maybe giving us clues. Mm -hmm. So the rental car is also captured um, on CCTV near this path where Gemma's body is found. Um, and the next morning we see Gemma returns home to her home at 7 a.m. And the same day Gemma returns home is the day the tourists find Deborah's body. So police, you know, they've do, they're doing their investigation and they're really realizing all the evidence points to Gemma. I mean, it's pretty obvious. You got the WhatsApp message to the lodger David. You've got the email to the missing persons charity, CCTV footage with the suitcase, the broken finger at the hospital. And then of course, the messages about the finances to Deborah. So July 6th, 2021, less than a week after Deborah's body was found, they arrest Gemma. Yes, the criminal mastermind, right? Hands just over to your hands. All right, Gemma, at this moment, I'm arresting you on suspicion of murder. Okay, you don't have to say anything, but you may have a defense. If you want to mention one question, something which you later rely on court, anything you do say, maybe given the evidence, okay? Once you're in the cuffs. Am I allowed to? I'll go explain everything to you, okay? Should I get some shoes? If you want one sec. Who's inside at the moment? Mother. Your mother? Yeah. Okay. If you wanna, oh, can someone lift that up? Yeah, let's step back inside. Is anyone else inside? Just your mum. Yeah. yeah. There is someone else inside. No, 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 just your mum. Just mom. my mum. Yeah. All right. Do you wanna show bring her or bring her in? Bring her in. Right, yeah. We're just gonna come in for a sec, yeah, okay? Sure. And if you didn't catch it and you're wondering, they did let her get her shoes. So the investigation now finds a lot of evidence in, in Gemma's home, tying her back to Deborah, including Deborah's passport, her driver's license, her bank cards, and they also find a book on how to write a will. They find a copy of the original will, Deborah's real will, that left everything to the church. Okay? And they also find another will, the fake one, that was created by Gemma, that has Deborah's forged signature on it, and this is the will that left everything to Gemma and her mother. And one other interesting thing about the, about the will is that one of the witness, witness signatures on the forged will was of Virgil's, the neighbor who had died and she stole the phone from. So using Virgil's death as an opportunity shows just how much planning Gemma had put into this. She had the phone that couldn't be traced back to her and now she's got the ability to use Virgil's fraudulent signature on documents that were supposedly signed before her death. Right. Or his death, sorry. Mm -hmm. So we'll see in this picture that the police found the blue suitcase. It was on top of a neighbor's garden shed. So she really is doing their best to cover her tracks here. Oh, yeah. Um, the suitcase had been washed out, but they found a bloody tea towel in it, and uh, the DNA on that tea towel belonged to Deborah. Uh, but one of the most incriminating pieces of evidence that they found was Jenna's calendar, her personal calendar. And she had written notes in this calendar on June 26, the same day she drove Deborah's body to Sulcum, this is what the notes read, 8 a.m., collect body back. Okay. Why not write it down? Case closed, no. And then it says C letter. The letter C and letter, and we can't figure out what that means. Yeah, 
will copy, which we can understand what that means, and then two-hour walk. Now, when we first went through this script after our writers gave it to us, I thought the two-hour walk was her reminding her to get some exercise. It wasn't. It was the two hours that she was wheeling around the suitcase. So, there yeah. you go. Yeah. So, I mean, Gemma was clearly highly intelligent. She could, you know, well, she did well in school, and she devised a cunning plan to carry out this murder plot. But it was clear she was no criminal mastermind. Mm -hmm. uh, she left behind a breadcrumb, a trail of breadcrumbs that led her straight to the door, which we just saw. Uh, during her interrogation, Gemma takes what we call the brick wall approach, where she's just going to deny everything about Deborah's murder. And, and they've said that the person driving the Volvo waited in the car all that time with the windows down and the front door open, the passenger door open, when it was literally chucking it down with rain and it was windy. Why is that, Gemma? No comment. The car stank, didn't it, Gemma? No comment. Stunk of a dead person. No comment. Stunk of Deborah's decomposing body. Is that right, Gemma? No comment. Love that pause. No comment. Yeah. July 9th, Gemma is officially charged with Deborah's murder. So in October of 2022, her trial began. She maintained her innocence all the way through the trial. Her defense didn't have a lot to work with here, you can imagine. Um, they, what they asserted was that there was no DNA evidence that Deborah's body had been in the suitcase, they said there was no evidence of a fight in Deborah's home, and they claimed that Gemma didn't need the money. They said that she was wealthy. She had 100,000 pounds in savings. She owned a home in Australia and had this London home worth 4 million pounds. And the defense even tried casting doubts by asking a pathologist to explain the cracked ribs. And they said, you know, could that have been a result from falling down the stairs or someone doing chest compressions if she'd had an accident? And of course, the pathologist said, yeah, maybe, that doesn't explain the decapitated head. Yeah. There you go. So October 21st, after seven hours of deliberation, the jury finds Gemma guilty. Her sentencing was the first broadcast live on television um, and the first murder sentencing ever broadcast live in England and Wales, which blew my mind because we've been doing it forever in the U.S. and this just happens all the time. But this was very, uh, this is very noteworthy here. Yeah. Gemma Mitchell, I have to sentence you for the murder on the 11th of June of last year of Mi Quen, otherwise known as Deborah Chong, of which you were convicted by the jury yesterday. You are clearly a highly intelligent woman, having obtained first-class honours in 2006 in human sciences from King's College, London, and then gone on to qualify as an osteopath. You went to live and work in that capacity in Australia, returning to live here with your mother in 2015. You lived together in a large property in North London, and the two of you decided to add an upper floor to the house. This proved to be your undoing. Meanwhile, you met the victim in this case through the church, sometime it would appear in 2020. She, like you, was a very devout Christian, and it is clear from the hundreds of phone messages that passed between you over a period of several months, right up to the time of her death, and which featured in the evidence in the trial, that you became very close. And as you well knew, 
she was particularly vulnerable, both mentally as well as physically. I have no doubt that you had killed her whilst you were at her house. And absent any explanation from you, given that you went no comment throughout your police interviews and did not go into the witness box, I am driven to the conclusion that you went to her house that morning with that intention in mind. As part of your degree, you were taught anatomy and you included on your website, which advertised your services as an osteopath, the fact that you had experience in the dissection of human bodies. That no doubt stood you in good stead when you cut off Deborah's head. Although why you chose to do that remains a mystery. Quite apart from anything else, I am driven to the conclusion that you are extremely devious. The enormity of your crime is profoundly shocking, even more so given your apparent religious devotion, as well as the fact that Deborah Chong was a good friend to you and had shown you great kindness. The sentence of the court is one of life imprisonment and the minimum term of imprisonment that you will in any event be required to serve will be 34 years. There will be deducted from that term the 475 days that you were spent in custody on remand and the statutory surcharge will apply. Can you please take the defendant downstairs? So like the judge said, adding the addition to the house was really her undoing. And up until that point, Gemma had lived a normal life until, of course, she ran into financial trouble, which raises a haunting question. Under certain cir circumstances, can any ordinary person be capable of doing unthinkable things? Gemma will be eligible for parole on July 10th, 2055, just days before her 71st birthday. Recently, there's been some uh, updates in the news where Gemma's mother, Hillary, has spoken out and says that she still believes that Gemma's innocent and that the suitcase that we see on the CCTV footage only had picnic, su picnic supplies for a trip to the beach. Um, she's quoted in the Australian newspaper, The Chronicle, saying, quote, I'm old. Gemma's all I've got. Who will help me fix this house now that she's gone? I can't leave it another 30 years. Gemma sorted out the building work. She said she'd look after me to the end, even if she was on her hands and knees. One of the tragic, like, ironic twists of this event is that Gemma's mother is now in the exact state of vulnerability and loneliness that Deborah was. Irony, karma, luck, stupidity, call it what you want. But there's no way any of us would have known what Gemma might have done if she'd gotten away with it. One of the last things we wanted to say about this case is that it, it gives us a reminder to all of us to watch out for the most vulnerable in our communities. Because these, you know, even Deborah, who had money, who had resources, was lonely. She was old. She was frail. And so this is something that we want to just you know, re remind ourselves Reminded and highly, everyone yeah. else that you know we really need to be that that advocate for people, and remind you know uh, each one of us is important and should be cherished and taken care of. One of the last things I say on every single episode of Once Upon a Crime is be good to one another, and it's just something to remind us to do that every day, whatever in ever smaller big ways that might be. Yeah. And then we've got. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. it I got to thank everyone for coming here. This was actually my first live show I've ever done. <laughs> so thank you for being here.
And of course, I gotta thank my fabulous co-host Esther. <laughs> thank you, Tyler. Oh, and the, the the episode we did a crossover episode that released today on both of our feeds on this case. Yeah, so, so you're gonna get the actual the produced the real the good one. One when talking With all like the editing. this through the whole episode. <laughs> With the voice. Yeah. So yeah, it, it gets dropped tonight. Um, and if anyone here is a Patreon supporter, it's gonna be on our Patreon feed. Yes. This one will be. So yeah, and if you want to find out more about the show, uh, of course we are on every single podcast platform. You cannot swing a cat without hitting the name of our podcast. <laughs> Don't swing a cat. Anyways, uh, thanks again, and I hope you guys had a fantastic weekend. It was so, so awesome much. being in London, and thank you for attending. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks once again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this special episode. Don't forget to come and hang out with me at CrimeCon in Orlando next weekend. Check my social media posts all weekend to find out where I'll be. The links to Once Upon a Crime's Facebook page, Instagram, and TikTok are in the show notes. Special thanks to Tyler and Beck at the Minds of Madness podcast for inviting me to collaborate on this case and present it at CrimeCon London. Check out Tyler's podcast at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be good to one another.